The following resource is from DesiringGod.org. Even though it's been a joy and a, and a privilege to take a boat ride through your harbor and to do a bus tour through the city and speak a couple of times with the Gettys, to be with you here in the people of God gathered in worship over this word is a greater privilege. I want you to know that. It's deeply felt. So, Father, as I stand in this remarkable place, this sacred place, with the Word of God between us, I ask for your help to be faithful to what is written, to magnify Jesus Christ, to strengthen the faith of your saints, to be an instrument of salvation and to motivate and empower this people for their mission in this world, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you have your Bibles, keep them open. I saw a lot of you looking down, so you must have them, some of you anyway. We're going to look at some remarkable things in verses 1 through 6 of John 11. But let me go back to the beginning and set the stage. In the beginning was the Word. You know this, right? In the beginning was the Word. That's our Lord and our Savior. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. (laughs) The mystery of, of, of the Trinity already standing forth with Him and Him. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then we skip down. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So this is our Lord Jesus, with God, as God, forever, from all eternity. So he is very, very great. And because he was from the beginning and because he is God, therefore he was in his power, in his wisdom, in his goodness, totally on the throne, totally wise and totally good on 9-11 in 2001 when 2,996 people in America, died during those terrorist attacks. He's fully capable of controlling things, fully capable of explaining things, fully capable of putting all things right. Not only there, but also 30,000 people in Bam, Iran, just a few years later, perished in one night in an earthquake. My son Benjamin quit college to go over there and live in a tent for six months and serve those folks. And not only 30,000 or 3,000, but a few years later, 2005, 230,000 people perished in one night in the South Seas off the coast of India 
in that tidal wave, that tsunami, every day in the world, 150,000 people die. And Jesus reigns from eternity to eternity in all his sovereignty, in all his wisdom, in all his goodness. He is able to control and to explain, to set right your losses, right? Numbers, they don't move us much. Mom, a son, a daughter moves us. It's a thrilling thing to me to come to you in the confidence that are not five sparrows sold for a penny? Not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father. The hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. So, from the, from the tiniest little insignificant sparrow to the, to the hairs on your head, this is, this is magisterial, universal rule and close, attentive hair care. <laughs> we, we adopted an African-American baby 23 years ago. She's going to get married in September. And how many times did I watch my wife lean over her at three, four, five, braiding her hair? You've got to get hair right. You adopt an African-American baby. You get it right. How attentive he is. She can't count them. He counts them. He knows the number as he braids. So I come, I come to you in a world like that with a God like that. Now here we are in chapter 11. And let me set the stage. I'm going to read the first six verses again and draw out something you may or may not have ever seen in these verses. They have been life-inverting for me. So Mary and Martha and Lazarus are very good friends of Jesus. You'll see that as we read it again. And Lazarus is very sick. And Mary and Martha send word to Jesus, Come, the one whom you love is sick. Please, come. That's the situation. I don't know if you noticed the title in the worship folder about death and love and glory and suffering and gladness. <laughs> it's a string of words. I'm meaningless without a verb, right? We Just words. So as I read verses 1 to 6 now, you look for death. You look for love. You look for glory. Gladness you won't see yet. That comes later, a few verses later. But watch those three at least, and ask yourself, how do they relate to each other? Okay, here we go. Verse 1 again. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, a village of Mary and her sister Martha. 
it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. And when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God. So that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Focus on verses 1 and 2 just for a moment. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with her ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. The striking thing about verse 2 is that hasn't happened yet in the Gospel of John. What? That's odd. That, that's going to happen in chapter 12, verse 3. One chapter later, that event, verse 2. Mary's going to anoint the Lord with her hair. And he says to the reader, this Mary who's asking him to come, that's the Mary who did that. I haven't told you she did it yet, but that's the one I'm talking about. What's the point of that? That's the first instance in this text of how Jesus is going to draw out the endearing, special, sweet, deep, precious relationship between Jesus and this family. He's reaching forward to get a remarkable moment in the life of this woman who's going to love Jesus like that and mentions her that way here. So we can conclude at least... This is special between Jesus and this family, especially Mary. Now verse 3. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. So this is now, I would say, the second instance of drawing out he loves this family. Now he's mentioning Lazarus in particular. This man loves this family. And Jesus is is underlining it. He loves them. And he makes it explicit. He's not dealing with a casual acquaintance saying, please come. He's sick. Verse 4. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness is not going to lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So the first thing Jesus does is connect the, the news of Lazarus' sickness with the glory of God. Now, many people think this way, and we need to. He put it in relationship to the glory of God. It's about the glory of God. It's about the glory of the Son of God, who's going to be glorified through it. So take a deep breath, Mary and Martha. This is all about my glory. Not going to go the way you think, and it's not going to go the way you want. 
It's about my glory. This illness does not lead to death. The point of this illness is not death. It is the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. It's like, you probably remember chapter 9, the blind man, and the disciples say, who sinned, this, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus said, it's not because his parents sinned or that he sinned, it's so that the works of God might be seen. The, the glory of God, this blindness, all these years of blindness are about glory. Same thing here. This death, he's going to die. And Jesus knows he's going to die. He's going to let him die intentionally. We'll see that in just a minute. And it's all about glory. Here comes the third time for love in verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha. So there it is the third time. He loved her, loved Mary, loved Lazarus, loved Martha. Now, Jesus loved Martha. So I'm, I'm overstating it, aren't I, when I say it's all about glory. No, it's not all about glory. It's largely about love. And that's what clobbered me in this text, right? This is about Underlining three times, he loved them, he loved them, he loved them, he let him die. That's what's striking. So verse 5, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So surely John the writer is writing this to help us come to terms in our experience with what the love of God is like for you. What is it like to be loved by Jesus? It's like this. Love is not a minor theme in these six verses. It is a major theme. Three times he's saying he loved them. He loved them. He loved them. That's, he doesn't want you to miss that, and he wants you to put yourself in that situation and say, okay, I've been told that since I was little. Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me, and I, I don't feel loved a lot of times. And these texts, this one in particular, is in the Bible to help turn our world upside down when it comes to understanding the love of Jesus. Because the world doesn't get this. The world has no categories for understanding this kind of love that we're about to see. But you should. Apart from the Holy Spirit, this text is in, inexplicable. Now, the most stunning word in the text is the first word of verse 6. And I was listening as your pastor read the text hoping it was in the version that you use. <laughs> because there are English versions that leave it out. It is so strange. But, oh, it is there in the Greek. Un. Anybody know Greek? Un. Therefore. Therefore. So means therefore. So let's read verse, 
verses 5 and 6 together so you can see how stunning it is. Verse 5 underlines love like this. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, therefore, as a result and consequence of that great love, when he heard that he was ill, he stayed put. I remember when I first saw this years ago, I thought, okay, I don't want to overdo that. I don't want to overinterpret this. So open Don Carson's commentary on the Gospel of John. And he, he lit in to interpreters who ignore therefore in this text. So, okay, I'm not going to ignore it either. It's really there. It's not an accident. Jesus knew what this delay would mean. He knew exactly what it would mean. Verse 14, Jesus told his disciples plainly, Lazarus has died. So he's choosing not to rush and get there and do anything about that. He waits. He not does just wait two days, he makes sure that Lazarus is dead four days. Remember that. I mean, two days, you might say, oh, he swooned or fell asleep or they misdiagnosed, not four days, not in the tomb, not wrapped up, not smelling. He's really dead. And that was the plan. Now, you might think, I'm trying to stand outside myself here and criticize myself and say, look, it's really not so bad because he also knows he's going to raise him. <laughs> it's just not as, it's not that bad. It's not that hard. Now, if that's coming into your mind like it came into my mind, let me, let me tell you two things that came to my mind in response to that response. Lazarus really did die. That's, I have two cousins that just got cancer, about my age. David Pallison, I know quite well, who just passed away a couple of days ago. His funeral will be on Tuesday. I'll be here, I'll watch it on, I mean, I'll be in Scotland, but I'll watch it online. Death is all around me. I buried more people than I married in my ministry. It, um, death is not pretty. It's not pretty for the one dying. It's not pretty for those who love them. And I'm looking out at a lot of older people here, like me. And you think about it. You don't, you don't worry too much, probably, in a good church like this about death. You just worry about dying. I remember R.C. Sproul said, I don't fear death, I just fear dying. I get that. It was, and, and they didn't have any, any drugs back then. No palliative care. He died. He really died. And his sisters suffered that. So that's the first thing to keep in mind. Whether or not, they didn't even know he was going to be raised. Jesus didn't show up. 
That's what they knew. He didn't show up, and he died, and he's buried, and we loved him, and he was too young. Here's the second thing to think about. I think John, in writing chapter 11, is intentionally inviting us to see our own resurrection in relationship to Lazarus's, our death and our resurrection as parallel to Lazarus's. Why do I think that? You might want to drop your eyes down to verses 23 and 26, 23 to 26. See if you think I'm right about this. Jesus said to her, to Martha, your brother will rise again. So when he gets there, he gives them the hope, he's going to rise again. And Martha said, I know that he will rise again at the resurrection on the last day. Now, here's the connection. Jesus Jesus could have said, yes, and isn't that wonderful news? What he said was, I am that resurrection of the last day. And I just showed up. That resurrection has come into the world. That power, that control, that life-giving force is me. And I'm here. And let's show you right now what that's going to be like. Because I want you, Martha, and all of you to put the connection between Lazarus' experience and what you will experience. So he continues, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. In other words, my, my raising your brother from the dead will be what will happen to you. Which means that the way to think about Lazarus' death is as a a forerunner, a little trailer of ours, our death and our resurrection. So now, as you step back then and think about Lazarus has died and Jesus didn't go, and he let him die because he loved him. You shouldn't whitewash that, diminish that, minimize that by saying, oh, he's going to raise him four days later, because he's going to raise you too. And the distance between your resurrection and the coming of Jesus when it will happen, your, your death and the coming of Jesus when the resurrection will happen, the distance between that is a length of time that compares to four days as nothing compared to eternity. There's nothing. So the difference between your death and resurrection and Lazarus' death and four days later rising are virtually the same. Except yours is better. You never die again. Poor Lazarus. He had to go through this twice. So, if you're going to minimize Lazarus' experience, you better minimize your own. Say, no, no big deal to die. I'm going to rise in four days anyway. I mean, more or less. And you don't do that. You know you don't do that. You don't minimize your death. You don't minimize your loved one's death. You take it seriously. You groan, you grieve, you ache, 
And, and that's the way we should feel this. So let's look again at the logic of verses 5 and 6, because this is the main point I want you to feel, because it, it turns your, your world upside down. Verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and, and Lazarus. Therefore, because of that love, you with me logically? I don't want to add anything here. don't want to make anything up. Therefore, because of that love, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Therefore, because of that love, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And that's what we have to understand. How is that love? How is it love? That's what we're supposed to see. John intends, Jesus intends for everybody who reads this to ask that about your experience. He loves them, therefore he does not heal them. He loves them, therefore he does not save him from death. I don't know if you watched it. You, you can go to uh, the CCEF website and watch a 60-minute a conversation that David Paulison, the leader of the biblical counseling movement who just passed away last week at age uh, seven, 69, watch a conversation between him and the man who led him to Christ 50 years earlier. And he made the recording three months before he, he died. And it was a most remarkable conversation and will draw you in to the difference between having no hope and having a great, great hope. John intends, Jesus intends for us to ask this about ourselves. How are we loved when we're dying. He doesn't heal him. He just lets him die. How is that love? The answer is given, I believe, in verse 4. You just have to think a little bit. This illness does not lead to death. In other words, the, the, he's going to die. But that's not the point. What is the point? It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So the point of his death is not death. The point of his death is to reveal the glory of God, and particularly the glory of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. So now you step back and you say, okay, the so at the beginning of verse 6 says that the meaning of the delay and the death is love. And verse 4 says that the meaning of the delay and the death is the glory of God. What would you do? I mean, how would you preach the sermon from here on out? What, what would you draw out for your life? Here's what I draw out. 
The world doesn't understand what love is. What, what is love? Love is doing what you need to do in order to reveal most fully and most durably the all-satisfying glory of God in Jesus. To be loved is to be shown glory. The glory of God. If we're not a God-centered people who see God himself in his Son as the greatest treasure, the most beautiful reality, the most all-satisfying friend, experience, and father, if we're not that way, that makes no sense. You go out and do an average interview on the street with any unbelieving person in Belfast and say, what is love? They won't go here. They won't say, to love is to have anything happen to me. Life, death, sickness, anything that will show me more of God. Nobody's going to say that. That's true. If God is all to you, it's true. If God is minor, if God is marginal, if your life is your most important thing, if your kids are your most important thing, your marriage is most important, your health is most important, that won't make any sense. But if God is all, if God is beautiful, if God is the supreme treasure of your life, then to have more of him is to be loved. That's the point of the so at the beginning of verse 6. So here's my definition of love based on this text. Love is doing whatever you have to do or whatever God has to do at whatever cost, whatever you have to do in order for the glory of God to be shown. Look down at verses 14 and 15. I mentioned that... uh, Gladness didn't figure in yet. And that's in the title of the sermon, Gladness. Look at verse 14. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there. So that you may believe. (laughs) Gladness that Lazarus has died so that you might believe. Now, how does that relate to the glory being revealed? What's the counterpart between the glory of God being revealed And the human response, belief. This is so many, many times when we take belief and just say, oh, believe. And we don't even think through, what what does believe mean? Let me read it again. 
Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. What does it mean to believe the glory of God revealed? It means to be satisfied with the glory of God. We beheld his glory. This is verse 14 of chapter 1. We beheld his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So glory is revealed through Lazarus' death and being raised. The glory of God is revealed as a demonstration of love because to be loved is to see more of God even through pain. And belief is the receiving and the experience of that revelation of the glory of God as your treasure. The Gospel of John is written for this, isn't it? These two great purposes. These things are written that you may believe. These things are written so that you may see the glory of the Son of God. The glory of God revealed, I receive it through faith, and that faith is the experience of the glory of God as my supreme treasure, better than life itself. My uh, whole life since about 1969 has been devoted to trying to understand, live out, and make plain this sentence. God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. And if you wonder, where do you get that sentence? I get it from texts like this. Verse 4 says, this is not about death. This is about the Son of God being glorified. And verses 5 and 6 in their logical connection says, this is about being loved. So if it's about being loved and Christ being glorified, then I surely am being treated well. I am being given joy and satisfaction now and forever by the revelation of that glory. (coughs) And therefore, God is glorified. Christ is magnified to the degree that in the face of death, I have my deepest satisfaction in him. He doesn't look good if we walk towards death and have no delight in him. We don't make him look good that way. We just like the world. But if we walk towards death with satisfaction in the revelation of his glory, he looks good. Love is doing whatever you have to do, God or man, doing what you have to do through suffering, whatever it costs, to reveal the greatest glory for the greatest enjoyment to God's people. That's what I think the logic of verses 5 and 6 imply. So let me close like this. Let this text and this strange love of Jesus, it's a very strange love, I admit that. You have to spend your whole life trying to get yourself right side up because we're born upside down. 
We're born with ourselves at the center. And this text is saying, this will make sense if you stay at the center of your life. If you are your treasure, this will be insanity. If God is your treasure, this will make sense. You'll understand what love is because you understand that glory, his glory is the center of your life. So let this text, this strange love of Jesus, turn your world upside down. Love is not what the world thinks it is. It's not the removal of pain. It's not the removal of death. Because that's what you were made for, the glory of God, instead of the removal of pain. If, if you walk through life thinking minimizing pain is the essence of love, the Bible will be a closed book to you. It's not a closed book. This text is about revealing the glory of God, revealing it through a very strange kind of love, namely staying two days where he was and letting Lazarus die. The glory of God in Jesus is the only thing that can satisfy your soul. God knows this about you. He made you this way. The glory of God in Jesus is the only thing that can satisfy your soul. You're made for this. Therefore, if you must take away health for you to see that, if you take away wife for you to see that, if he must take away your life for you to see that, that is love. Jesus loved Lazarus and Mary and Martha. He loved them, and therefore he let Lazarus die so that they could see the glory of God. Father in heaven, I pray now for this people. What they will have to walk through individually in the next days or corporately, you know. And I ask, oh God, that you would grant such a mindset, a strange, glorious, biblically formed Holy Spirit-given, Christ-exalting mindset that they would feel loved when you strip from them anything that would keep them from treasuring you above everything else. With trembling, Lord, I invite you to do that in my own life. It's a dangerous prayer to say, at any cost, at any cost, reveal Christ to us. Show us Christ. But I pray that that's what you'll do for me and in this room. At any cost, just like Jesus has paid the ultimate cost for it to happen. At any cost, may the glory of Christ not only be seen by us, but be so savored by us that he would be our all-satisfying treasure. I ask this in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from DesiringGod.org. If you found it helpful, we encourage you to enjoy and share from thousands of resources on our site 
including books, sermons, articles, and more, available free of charge. DesiringGod.org exists to help you treasure Jesus more than anything else, because God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him.